morning. If you have a Bible, 1 Peter is where we're at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 5. And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. Just the, the second sentence is where we're going to start. I almost feel like I'm cheating on Mark. I didn't tell you to turn to Mark's gospel, but here we are. He'll understand. <laughs> All right. We finished Mark, and so here we are, um, just at different places in the Bible for the next few weeks. Verse 5, second sentence, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, before we pray, I think it's just probably good to say this. When we speak about anxiety this morning, and, and be honest with you, we're going to speak much more about humility than anxiety. But when we speak about anxiety this morning, we're not speaking here of a medical diagnosis common to some, but we're speaking of a specific general condition common to all, and more specifically to Christians. So we just need to know that as we we move forward. So let's pray. God bless you this morning. Father, will you please, please flood my weakness with your strength as your word is preached Cause all our fears to flee as we see Jesus in these verses, as we see his wisdom, his example, his cross, his promise, and his power to secure us in his righteousness. And please remind us that Jesus really does live and that he reigns and he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And he's not an ethic. He's not some super psychiatrist. He is a divine person. He is our king. He's our savior, our friend, and he cares deeply for us. So help that to come through, Father, as we, as we move forward in these verses for, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ promised that he was going to build his church, that he will build his church, and he is doing this, if you like, in enemy-occupied territory. And the evil one, our real enemy, does not yield ground so easily. And because of this, wherever Christ is building his church his way, we can be sure that opposition will develop. Indeed, gospel advance always invites opposition, stirs up opposition. Now, the opposition may come from outside the church, which is what Peter addresses here in, first, uh, his, in, in this first epistle. Or the opposition may come from inside the church, which is what Peter addresses in his second epistle. Regardless, opposition will come. Peter's readers are encountering this opposition. And because of this, Peter begins this letter to these scattered believers with gospel certainties. And so what he does right from the beginning of 1 Peter, he injects gospel certainties before he speaks to them about gospel realities such as suffering and gospel responsibilities such as humbling ourselves to one another. 
So he tells them right at the outset, nothing's going to happen in this, in your Christian life, which can touch the windfall of the incorruptible, indestructible promises that are yours in the gospel. There's an inheritance which is kept secure by the perpetual vigilance of God your Father. Uh, The Puritans would say his garrison or his guardian grace. So in the here and now, we're not always spared from the wounds of gospel battle. We are not always spared from the pains of our human existence from, there you see in verse 7, anxiety. However, the Christian is personally surrounded and undergirded by a providence which is directed towards us personally. That's verse 7. Now, this is J.B. Phillips' translation. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him, for you are his personal concern. The Christian, then, is the personal concern of the God of the universe. Therefore, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness will see us through life and guide us until the complete and full benefit package, if you would, of our salvation is inherited. Think about salvation for a moment. This is the fullness of all that God wills us to have and be and enjoy, secured for us by His Son at the cross and His mighty resurrection. So that salvation is not only carefully secured for us, but it's real and it's ready to be fully bestowed upon God's people on that great last day when that whole benefit package of our salvation will just be made perfect. Just think about that, a benefit package, like no other benefit package. So yes, there is disparity now. There's a now and not yet element between salvation made perfect, which is coming, and the salvation in time and in history, which we now experience. Subsequently, the Christian will not know perpetual peace in this body. We will not know perfection in this body. We will not know a painless existence in this body. And we are not damaged goods or sub-Christian if we deal with anxiety. Therefore, we will feel the tension of the now and the not yet, which is coming. And there's nothing we can do. There is nothing we can learn. There's nothing we can pray which will keep that reality from us. Now, heaven may send us bits and pieces of eternal life to cheer us up, but heaven is heaven, and earth is earth, and flesh is flesh, and all men and women are like grass. And Peter says, we're fading. So because of this, right at the beginning of his letter, which, by the way, helps us to set a context and helps us in, to interpret these verses that we just read at the end of the letter because we can't just jump in there, right? We can't jump in there in a way that's untrue to the human condition and untrue to the Bible. You know, like, so Marsha and, and Mike, they figured out a way to get rid of anxiety all the time. That's not reality. I don't know of a secret recipe that will guard me perpetually from anxiety in my body, in this flesh, on this side of heaven. So to interpret these verses that we just read, we need the context. And so we've read, Peter, he's telling us, and we're going to find out in just a moment, keep your eyes on Jesus. He's going to give us gospel indicatives. He's not going to put our eyes on ourselves, not yet. So he writes 
first of what is indicative, what is true of every believer because of Jesus. So you could be a strong believer, you could be a weak believer. You could be a heavily gifted believer or not. You can be a believer who's suffering or you don't really suffer. It doesn't matter. Because Christ is remnant, in fact, you might want to just turn to 1 Peter 1 because I'm going to quote from verse 4. Because Jesus is risen, there is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of that salvation that is ready to be revealed in that last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith or of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I'm going to tell you this now, and we'll get to it at the end. This praise, glory, and honor that you that is there is not just praise, glory, and honor for Jesus. This is, this is praise, honor, and glory for us because this is, the, this is the, how it works. At that last day, people are going to look at us and the work that Jesus has done, and they're going to go, Wow! They're going to look at you and go, wow. And they're going to look at Jesus and say, wow, you did that. And it's going to be perfectly done. And there's not going to be any ambiguity. Not like this much of us. It's going to be perfect. Praise, glory, and honor. The race is finished. Praise, glory, and honor. Because Jesus has kept his word and has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So I want you to see that Peter begins, and through this whole letter, he gives us revealed truth. This is truth that we would never know unless God revealed it through his word. As the Christian lives their gospel life, your inheritance is real. It's coming. In the meantime, you should expect gospel suffering. And you should not be surprised by the suffering nor, nor anxiety which may result as a, uh, as a, may, may be as a result of your gospel loyalties and your gospel workings. Now this is important. As long as I've been studying the Bible, my studies have always taught me that a life that has been saved by God's grace will create a needy life. A life that will be deeply aware of the daily need of the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, needing the free grace of God to keep us alive in every sense of that word. In other words, a gospel-driven life will keep taking us to the end of ourselves. It is a life of perpetual loss so that there might be perpetual gain in Christ. Now you see this in Peter. You see it in Paul. You see it in their letters. They keep losing the things of time and they count it as gain because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Now by nature, we think gain is gain and loss is loss. So Something comes to us, some more things, some more stuff of time, and we go, gain. Things good. God is pleased. We go, gain. And money or whatever else, I'm doing better. Gain. But loss, loss is loss. Not so. Not so. And you know, if you think about it, we need to remind ourselves we're not self-made men or women in any way. Everything we have comes from God. It comes at the rate and the pace of our providential God of all grace. So think, I mean, just for a minute, how did you wake up this morning? I mean, I know how you woke up, but who woke you up? How did you manage to put your feet on the floor this morning? Do you know why your tongue is still working today? Do you know why it is that you were able to greet people this morning in, in a way that is friendly and joyful? 
Do you know why you can walk and think and hold your wife and kiss your husband and your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever? Do you know why all of this works? Because of the goodness and grace of God. Let me help you. Remember Moses and was talking to God and God had told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses is like, you know, my brother's way better at this than I am. You should let him do that. And they go back and forth a bit as God presses on Moses the necessity of submission to God's plan and his purpose in Moses' life, which begins with humility. And eventually God says, hey, Moses, who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? Moses, who gives sight? Moses, who takes sight? And so as we seek to obey Jesus Christ and enjoy his righteousness, our weakness will just stick out. It'll just ooze out, and that's fine, because that is when Christ's power will rest on us. It was one of our readings. It's in my my notes, 2 Corinthians 12.10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, our weakness may confuse us at times. However, weakness is a mechanism designed by God which keeps us at bay so that we won't rely on ourselves but on Jesus. Let me give you an example. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.9. This is what he writes. I'm, we were in Asia, gospel obedience. We were under a burden far beyond our ability to endure gospel sufferings so that we even despaired of life, gospel-driven anxiety. Indeed, we felt we were under the sentence of death, gospel reality. But this happened in order that we would not trust in ourselves, gospel necessity, but in God who raises the dead. So the modern Christian is tempted to weaponize the Bible as this, you know, so I'm going to take the Bible, and I'm never going to know weakness, and I'll never know anxiety. So we either teach ourselves, or maybe we're taught, that we can build these great big shelters so we can power up physically and we can power up emotionally, financially, spiritually, thinking I will build those walls so high that suffering can't touch me and anxiety won't touch me. Loved ones, think with me. If they touch Jesus in all of his perfection, should they not touch us in our imperfection? You see, gospel living, not, not just living, and not like um, moral, self-righteous living. Gospel living will keep you in touch with your frail th- frailty. And often God will keep us in touch with our frailty through suffering. Indeed, it's happening here in 1 Peter. The people here that Peter writes to, they're in great difficulty because of the gospel. They're suffering unjustly. In some cases, they are suffering without mercy at the hands of people who have misrepresented them. They do not deserve this persecution they are receiving, yet it's coming. And it's coming from every direction. And all of it, if you would, is being passed through, verse 6, God's mighty hand, by God's sovereign hand. Therefore, people at, excuse me, Peter, at the beginning of this letter, and all through it threads these um, gospel indicatives, sound doctrine. Gospel truth to generate humility in us. And as he comes to the end of this letter, the stuff that we read, he's not just giving moral imperatives, do this, do this. He's saying, listen, remember what is coming, chapter 1. And be what you are, chapter 5. And what he says, 
Pretty straightforward. You see it there if your Bible's open. Verse 5b, all of you, in our first point this morning, humility. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. That's an imperative. It's written as a command. Okay, so why should all of us do verse 5b? Well, God said to. Okay, good. That, that, that's good. But let me ask you this question. Why in the world would any Christian, no matter their age or stage in their Christian pilgrimage, why would they not be humble to other Christians? And by the way, the word humble, it means true lowliness, which displays a full dependence on the Lord, dismissing reliance upon the self or self-governing and draining our carnal ego as humility exalts the Lord as our all in all and prompts the gift of his fullness in us. Okay, so humility is the emptying of self so that Christ can fill us up it's the reduction to a lowly state, reduction of arrogance, of self-dependence. It's, if you would, it's a downward trajectory in our living. In essence, um, humility and Christian maturity, they go hand in hand. So in, in humility, there's this recognition that there is a perpetual potential in all of us, in me, to have our way way too much. And that must be dealt with all the time. Okay, back to the question, why would any Christian not be humbled to another Christian? Why? I mean, just think with me, because you very well may be smarter, you may be holier, you may be more popular, you may be wealthier, you might have been around longer, you might be more gifted, you might have more connection than other Christians. I mean, that reality is there. We're we're foolish if we dismiss that. But again, why shouldn't we be humbled to each other? So I said that sound doctrine breeds humility. Let me just back that up. We're all sinners. We are all justifiably deserving of God's wrath, yet we're all saved by God's grace so that none of us can boast. And we're all forgiven and we all have peace with God. That's Romans 5 through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, we have all, and all of us have every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1. And we all have the fullness of Christ, Colossians 2. We have the righteousness of Christ, Romans 3. And all the promises of God are yes and amen for all of us in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1. And we're all going to be in toge- together in heaven if we're in Christ forever. And all of us are God's children. So none of us should measure God's love uh, for us or our rightness with God by the things of time. Because all of life for all of us is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. So Paul was right when he wrote 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So the question was, why, why would we not in our right minds, girded with sound doctrine, because doctrine does not divide, it actually unites, verse 5b, why would we not clothe ourselves with humility toward each other? Why? And can I say to you, humility Humility is a great unifier in the body of Jesus Christ. I mean, you understand this. We can say out loud, come on, everybody, stay united. That's fine. We can pray, Romans 15, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ. And that last little part is really, really important, right? Because we're not just asking for unity, for unity's sake, so that, you know, there would be a nice ambiance in the place. No, together, unity, so that together we can follow Christ. So there's that. Or, you know, we can just weed out or ignore people who are not like us. 
We could be united in some kind of like homogeneous tribal way. So we like people who talk like us, think like us, look like us, handle all things like us. But here, sound doctrine, which breeds humility, is a great unifier. All of you who were saved by grace, all of you who, who, who still sin, all of you who have been given the perfection of Jesus, clothe yourself with humility. Because there's really no biblical reason not to. And by the way, the word clothed is the same idea in John 13. Remember when Jesus, to show the disciples the full extent of his love, he put on an apron, that's the word. This is the word of someone who would tie on an apron to do menial, lowly work. All of you, tie on that apron of humility. Wear the garment of humility. Be ready to be what others need us to be. And by the way, where humility is not present, friendships are marred, families become broken, marriages are in peril, churches are damaged, and sound doctrine which breeds healthy Christians is ignored. Humility thinks about serving and not being served. It thinks about giving rather than taking, submitting rather than commanding. Forgiving rather than keeping a detailed record of our sins or the sins of others. And humility fits into the arrangement of others, not demanding that they fit in us. Isn't that Jesus Christ, the deep humiliation of our Savior, who who brings himself into time, heaven to earth. He fits himself into our arrangement. He humbles himself. He steps into time. He's made flesh and he's made sin for us. His punishment, our peace, his punishment for our sins. He's deserted under God's wrath for us. The author of life yields to the power of death. He gains our redemption. He gets our sins taken care of. He spills his blood, offers his body up as a sacrifice to God to make reconciliation and to purchase our atonement. And he's still at it. He's still serving. He's in heaven right now and he's making intercession for us in the very presence of God with all the benefits that flow from us Because of his mediation. That's Jesus. That's the Jesus in us. Therefore, do you see your Bible? Verse 5b, all of you. All of you, clothe yourself with humility. Empty yourself. Reduce yourself. A lowliness of mind born from an utter dependence on God. We are all children of our Father in heaven in Christ. We are all servants of Christ. We all rely on grace and we all only have what has been given to us. Therefore, verse 5b, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because, and I hope your Bible is still open, because, because God antitasso, that's the Greek word. God squares off. He's against. God is like a soldier who has been placed in a certain position with a definite order to attack or resist. God resists the proud. God opposes the proud. What is the proud? Well, it's showing oneself above others. It's a perversion of gospel equality and, and gospel reality. The word there for pride is hyperphonia. Okay? It means an enhanced appearance of the self. So you're enhancing yourself in such a way that you show yourself more than others and you show yourself more than Christ. Remember a few years ago, those big stickers you could put on your wall of your favorite athlete or maybe even yourself? 
That's like this, a hyper picture of yourself. God opposes that. Pride says, I'm not like other men. I'm a bit better. In other words, people look at you and you want them to say, wow, what's your secret? Nice job. When God wants people to look at us living in humility so people can say, wow, what a savior. Because how did all of that come out of that? Some of you know this story. I, I want to tell it again a long, long time ago now. When I was in high school, I was a sophomore, and I was at an open wrestling tournament. An open tournament means I could, you could wrestle in any weight class you wanted. So I wrestled at a weight class where two other seniors in our school were wrestling at. And so it was open. It was double elimination. And so I beat them both. Now, they weren't out of the tournament. So one of the boys' mothers came. She was running late. And I was sitting, you know, where all the kids sit together, and, and she said, how did Eric do? That was the guy I beat. And someone said, Eric was beaten by Joe Franzone. And she said as loud as she could, she said, Eric lost to Joe Franzone? How did that happen? And I'm sitting there like, you know, hello? <laughs> I'm like 15 years old. You're 40. Could you just help me out a little bit here, you know? What was she saying? How did that come out of that? That's good. You might know this, but our president, God bless him, during his inauguration, the very first song that he picked to sing when he would dance with his wife was Sinatra. He, he did it my way. And the irony of that, the song begins, and now the end is near. Verse 5, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. God gives unmerited favor to people who know and live as they know that they do not deserve unmerited favor. Listen to Thomas Merton, a Puritan. What God gives me is more than I deserve and what he takes from me is, is more than I owe. What God gives me is more than I deserve. What he takes from me is more than I owe. So as you think about this in the context of human relationships, specifically husband and wife, in my normal reading this book this week, I was reading a love story. <laughs> Sorry. But it just listen to what the lady is commenting on her husband and the breakdown of the relationship in the marriage. And listen to what she says. I grew to realize that his emotions were without substance. His obsession was with himself, not me. He was telling me about a big contract he'd signed, some big deal in the United States, and I realized he was watching his own reflection in the window as he told me, as if playing to his own imagined gallery, posing for photographs that weren't being taken. Now, I want you to know that the proud person just sucks the life out of everyone around them. In a home, the rest of the family is either on life support or pins and needles when a pride-filled person impinges himself or herself on that home. This was Spurgeon a long time ago. In the city of man, the power of pride commands the obedience of others. In the city of God, the one who is powerful serves others powerfully. In the city of man, the lowly are shunned. In the city of God, the humble are exalted. In the city of man, ambition and success rule. In the city of God, meekness rules. Now, 
Another quote, this is from Sinclair Ferguson. This is a beautiful, to me, a beautiful paragraph. Just listen, please. Humility is not rooted in insecurity or fear. It's actually the fruit of power because the Christian knows they have guarantees from God. That's 1 Peter 1, 7, all that we read. They know they do not craft their own lives. They can rest from the pressure of time and making their own way. They can choose peace to live at their natural level. And they can afford to tend to small and unnoticed things because they are unconcerned with orchestrating their own life's path. So you know and I know that this pride thing is going to hound us until the rest of our days. It was at the very root of the things in the garden and it will be here as long as this earth and this flesh is is going on. Therefore, you see that verse 6? Therefore, it's under the mighty hand of God which keeps killing our pride and where humility is able to live. Humble yourself, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God that he might lift you up in due time. Now that little phrase, mighty hand of God, it's an Old Testament idea. It's a symbol of God's, his covering, governing power, his controlling power, his sovereignty. God displays by his hand over us that he is in charge. So the mighty hand means different things at different times. Sometimes the mighty hand of God is used to deliver believers from trouble. Sometimes the mighty hand of God is used to protect believers in their time of testing. Sometimes it's a shelter rather than a deliverance. Sometimes the mighty hand of God keeps you in that thing as a form of chastening, bringing what feels like pain against us, his kids, But all of life here is always under the sovereign, mighty hand of God. If you want to do some reading tomorrow or tonight, Exodus chapter 3, Job chapter 30, verses 21 and following, Ezekiel 20, verses 33 and following, they will help you understand the mighty hand of God. And so this is very direct for Peter's readers. They're under God's hand, and right now it's not the hand of deliverance. In fact, in some cases, chapter 4, verse 17, you see it there? It might be a hand of chastening. But mostly, what we read in chapter 1, it's a, it's a hand of testing. He's covering them, and they're going through terrible time of testing and suffering. So Peter says, humble yourself. Whether the mighty hand of God will deliver you, whether the mighty hand of God will protect you, whether the mighty hand of God is testing you and it seems so difficult, or whether the mighty hand of God is there to, as it were, to chasten you, no matter what, submit yourself, humble yourself, don't question God, don't argue with God, don't debate with God, don't say this isn't God. No, humble yourself under his will, under his power, under his hand. If you like, this is a good sentence, accept that this is a God-controlled experience. Accept it. It is a God-controlled experience. Don't fight it. Don't argue against it. Don't blame other people for it. Accept the mighty hand of God over you in this time of testing. So as trials come, verse 6, God will exalt you. You know that he will exalt you. He will lift you up at the proper time. And don't you want to say the fact that God would exalt us at all? I mean, what is that all about? The word there means to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. Stay with me. That's the very thing that natural man craves. They want dignity, they want honor, and they want happiness. And God's like, that's okay, but it's not going to come your way. It's going to come my way. In fact, if someone said, when is the proper time? 
Well, God's time, not our time. He knows what it is, and you'll know when it comes, and it might not come until the end. And that's okay. That's okay. Humility. Finally, anxiety. And I didn't want to spend a whole long, long time of it, but we're just going to take a minute or two. Now, I want you to look at your Bibles. You see verses 6 and 7? In most translations, there's like a period. So verse 6, period, verse 7. It's two sentences. In the Greek, it's actually one complete thought. There's no two sentences. There's just one thought. Why do I tell you that? Well, it's really important that you understand it's written in the aorist active participle, which means everything in verse 6 is in conjunction with verse 7, and everything said in verse 7 is in conjunction with verse 6. So they're not separated. They're actually together. Now stay with me. The word anxiety is essentially the fallout of being separated from God's truth in our minds. That's, that's the word, separated from the whole. So it's a mind that's disconnected from a proper understanding of God's truth. So when we have anxiety on that common level, that's what's taking place. We say things like, I'm all over the place, or I'm worried, or afraid, or I feel empty, or I'm frazzled, whatever it is. Our mind is disconnected from a proper understanding of God's truth. So Peter says, look, don't try to deny anxiety. Don't run from it. Don't ignore it. Don't try to like vacation it away or like shop it away. I mean, we understand that. I'm sure I've done that before. Instead, he says, verse 7, you see the word cast? It means hurl it away. It's the word used for an athlete throwing a javelin. Hurl your cares, your anxieties on God. He cares for you. Just throw them at God. Just all week long, I'm doing that. It's like, your Lord, I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of your love. I'm thinking of your providence. I'm thinking of sound doctrine. And I don't want, nor do you want, anxiety to be the base note in my life today. Because you care for me. I'm your personal concern. So you take those things. You don't hurl them at people, right? Sorry, it just came out. You hurl it at God. Who is this God that cares? I mean, who is he? He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God of your salvation. Romans eight thirty two. if he, God, this God did not spare his own son and he gave him up for us all, will he not along with the son give us all things? He's not the my sweet Lord of George Harrison. He's not that Lord. He is my great high priest. Listen carefully. He is my great high priest who is not ticked but touched with the feelings of my infirmities. So, so evil one, just bring it on. Tell me how weak I am. I say to you, you don't know the half of it. But this is what I know. My great high priest, he's not ticked. He's touched with the feelings of my infirmities. So I'm speaking about me now. When I wake up in the morning, curled up in a fetal position, blanket over the head, don't ring alarm clock. Don't touch me, Nicole. I'm staying here for the rest of my life. He's touched by that picture. Humble yourself to this truth, congregation, please. The presence of humility is directly related to the absence of anxiety. The presence of humility is directly related to the absence of anxiety. God has placed you here. Keep yourself in his love. 
Live at your natural level. Your gospel loyalty has brought you here to this place perhaps of suffering and difficulty. But you're under his hand. Now humble yourself. Throw all your anxiety like a javelin. Hurl it at God. He'll take it. Let's end like this. The scriptures are always bringing us to the end of ourselves. Not to leave us there, but in order that we might again and again find our sufficiency and our stability and our glory in Christ. Alone. Alone. Andrew Murray, South African teacher and preacher, lived in the previous generation. He was the guy that said that worship and evangelism, that's the two chief ends of the church. Listen to what he brought or wrote about suffering. First, he brought me here. It is by his will I'm in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. He will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. He will make the trial a blessing teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. In his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he will lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares upon him because he's your personal, your, excuse me, you're his personal concern. Let's pray. And if the gentleman would come forward as we prepare for communion, that would be wonderful. Now, God, as we ponder these things just for a moment and we prepare to take from your table, help us to remember, God, that the table is not for the perfect. Far from it. It's for sinners who have cried out to Jesus. Repent. He said and we did. Believe. He said and we did. And now by his good grace, we belong to the family of God and we are proclaiming together what the death of Christ has secured for us. So animate our hearts and our minds and help us to remember that we take communion together with each other and with you. Amen.